0: Welcome to the Da Vinci Hour, a podcast series that interviews individuals across the field of medicine to help provide an inside look into their experiences and provide insight on how to navigate the journey of becoming a physician. My name is Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and I will be your host. This podcast is brought to you by Da Vinci Academy, a medical education company that provides online video courses, outline format books, and clinical case videos for students studying the medical basic sciences. You can check out all that DaVinci Academy has to offer at www.dviacademy.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. Um, Got another great episode here for you uh, this week. Um, Today, we're uh, interviewing my good good friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Tai Chang. He is an anesthesiology resident here at Emory University. Just a little bit of bio on dr chang uh, like i said he's in the anesthesia program here he did his bachelor's degree at university of michigan in ann arbor michigan and then he did his md at rutgers robert robert wood johnson uh, medical school in new jersey um, and we uh, did our we first met when we did a vascular surgery rotation together uh, during our intern year uh, which ty was forced to do and i stupidly decided to do <laughs> um all things though, it was it was a good rotation um and we we learned a lot and we we got through it together so ty great to have you on here man
1: how you doing thanks thanks for having me uh maxwell it's weird to call you maxwell because i always called you cooper uh, <laughs> back from the vascular days but uh I appreciate it
0: yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think we'll just dive right in. I mean, uh, I think we were talking a little bit before we started recording, you know, like what, what rotation are you on right now and, and how's that going?
1: So I'm currently a couple months in into my second year of uh, my anesthesia rotation. So I'm a PGY2, which means typically for anesthesia residents, you're starting your now clinical anesthesia year one. So if you consider July 1st as the first month of your clinical anesthesia year, I am now starting my July, August, September, October fourth month of general anesthesia. So yeah, so I'm on my fourth month general anesthesia. I just recently switched sites. I was doing my general anesthesia rotation at Grady Memorial Hospital, which is the community hospital that's affiliated with Emory. Now I'm at home base, I guess you could call it. Um, which
0: is UH. Nice. Nice. Um, so I guess getting in, you know, I'm aware of anesthesia obviously, but like <clears throat> I feel like I just didn't get much exposure to it in med school. And I, I feel like it's one where students maybe that if they don't rotate on it, they maybe don't get a full exposure, I guess. What would you say like your typical day is, especially like when you're doing general anesthesia, like what are your responsibilities? Like when does your day start? Like, what? Um, like take us through it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that's a great point. Um, Admittedly, when I was in medical medical school as well, my exposure to anesthesia before I committed to a career in it was very limited. And then funnily enough, as as I've begun residency and actually starting my anesthesia training, I'm learning way more about the field than I did before. I'll start off by answering your question by actually debunking some of the myths. I don't have a favorite puzzle or Sudoku puzzle <laughs> I would love. I would actually love at this point in my career to actually have to be afforded that sort of flexibility you to do it Yeah. Um, during training, unfortunately not. Um, but my typical day on a general anesthesia rotation um, begins the day before uh, part of the reason why even for today's podcast recording, I had to push it back a little bit is, um, the night before our actual day begins, the, the, the day begins. Uh, our evening involves calling our attending. We use our remote EMR access. We look up our patients, what room we're in the next day. And then we kind of do a little bit more deep pre-op evaluation of the patients we'll be caring for. And that usually entails kind of going through their medical history, anything in their medical history that is more pertinent to the way we would, that would affect our airway management, for instance, or fluid requirements or pressure management, these kind of things. And then for any case, um, we always are pretty concerned about cardiac history, past surgical history, anything that would affect our positioning, um, anything that, that iatrogenically that we do may worsen their already existing uh, medical issues. And then once we've kind of gone through that medical history and and figured out what kind of things we should be concerned about, then we make a plan for for the anesthesia that we run by our attendings. It's a little bit odd to do that the night before. And that was something I was not really privy to uh, before I came into my school, but it is nice because at most you're doing about one to two to three at most cases um, that you will cover for the next day. And then the actual day of like tomorrow, It really depends on which site you're at, at least for our program. But the first surgery will start at 7.30. Um, so that means that we're usually in by around 6, uh, by 6 a.m. Because I just recently changed sites and everything logistically has been a nightmare for me, just like relearning everything. Um, so I give myself a little bit more of a buffer. And then I go in, set up the ORs, and then we go see our patients when they were, once they roll on the pre-op. Then we do another second check just to make sure that nothing uh, has happened since I looked at the computer notes, um, such as the patient eating after midnight, which would delay the surgery. Uh, we look at morning labs for patients who are diabetics. We'll usually do it like a point of care lab draw. And then the most daunting task, which is placing that first start IV, uh, just because, you know, IVs are no fun to start off with, but putting them in. Some of the patients were very sick and don't have very good vascular uh, vasculatures. Uh, it makes it a little bit of a challenge. And then all the while, we have to maintain our friendly you know, attitude while poking them uh, and establishing very important good access for the surgery. And then once that happens, we roll back into our surgery and our day kind of goes by. And that's where, you know, each case by case, you do your own anesthetic plan that we Discuss sometimes again, the last minute, why last minute we may call audibles or at least are attending well, we will adjust our plan. But if all that goes smooth, then our day typically ends by 3 p.m., at which point, uh, anesthetist, and uh, we could kind of maybe talk about that later, but that's another, <clears throat> it's a mid level provider uh, that exists in our field uh, that will come to relieve us at three, at which point, then I go back to kind of our home base and we do consent and pre-op evaluations where we write notes for patients for a select number of patients that will be responsible for um, also taking to the OR the next day. And then we do that phone call again with our attendings for the specific cases that we'll be assigned to.
0: Interesting. That's That's pretty cool. So I I didn't realize Hmm. you you guys do a lot of your I guess, pre-charting, if you will, um, like versus like medicine or surgery, they would come in very early and do it versus you guys do it the night before. Um, which I think probably makes like the morning a little bit less stressful. uh, I would imagine.
1: (laughs) We do it to make it as less stressful as possible. If we were to do it all the morning, out, oh man, that would be pretty tough. Yeah. Without delaying surgeries and such. And so
0: nice, nice. No, that's cool. And then, so I've always wondered, like, do you guys do any type of like rounding or like actually going up Cause I feel like I've seen you guys like drop notes before where like you evaluate, like you said, like you evaluated the patient and things like that, but they're not in the pre-op, like they're inpatient or something. Is that something that you guys are responsible for doing or is that, or do you only do that? Like when they finally get to pre-op area?
1: So I think when people think of anesthesia, they think of general anesthesia, which is what happens mostly intraoperatively. Although I think the modern day anesthesiologist will actually spend time in the perioperative arena. So like kind of like the pre-op I was telling you about. And also something I didn't mention, I guess I forgot to mention in between cases, there's also post-op. The PACU is called post-operative, sorry, post-anesthesia care unit. Um, So so you're in that realm. And and when you're usually sticking around in that realm, you won't do what you were just mentioning, um, Cooper. But then as far as there are subspecialties within anesthesiology where your home base is actually not the intraoperative arena, if you will. It's, so for instance, at Grady, um, when we have our general anesthesia rotation there, there are some days where we are assigned to to be on the acute pain service. So in the field, like as a fellowship, that the way you get to that point is doing in a regional fellowship or acute pain fellowship. And what these providers do is they are experts of acute pain, like post-operative, post-surgical pain. And and sometimes not even that, it could be post-traumatic pain. And uh, what you do in those cases is you may actually be a consultant to a primary surgery team or a primary ICU team or a medicine team. And when multimodal, these days, most teams are very good at multimodal management, but if that fails, uh, they may consult this team and use their expertise to seek more escalated forms of pain management in the form of sometimes epidurals. Sometimes uh, they'll do what's called Q pumps, uh, administration of medications uh, more invasively uh, that, by design, is to give better pain control. But all the while, with the goal of weaning and properly managing pain acutely, and then and then gradually coming off of. Uh, medications with adverse side effects.
0: Gotcha. Now, is that the pain management service or is that something separate from the pain management service? That, you're that is,
1: yeah. So generally, um, I think it's going to vary hospital by hospital, kind of whatever system they have in place. But at least at Grady Memorial Hospital, just because I'm familiar with that, um, that was the pain service. Gotcha. Uh, the pain okay. service that team consulted was the acute pain service.
0: Okay, okay. And I, I think we'll we'll get a little more into that uh, later on. But I think that pain management is definitely a, a very interesting subspecialty of of anesthesia as well. That I think, again, people aren't necessarily familiar with that. That is like a subspecialty. Um, so cool. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you said you're, you're on like a general anesthesia rotation. I guess, what other types of like, like you said, you were about to start doing like subspecialty rotation. So like what type of rotations like are you doing uh, as an anesthesia resident?
1: Sure. So outside of general, general will cover a lot of cases, like a lot of surgical cases from ophthalmology, ENT surgery, uh, trauma, acute care surgery, general surgery, um, surgery, urology. That's mostly a thing. That's what I can yeah. think of. Um, and then if you do not have specialties, uh, it's the way they have been kind of partitioned is based on the type of anesthesia that we provide is kind of vastly different. So one of them that's coming up for me after I finish my channel surgery stint is OB. Okay. So labor and delivery, um, and then acute pain and chronic pain. So there's two types of pain. Um, and then also doing cardiac, we do ICU. The modern day ICU is very different from how it used to be several years or decades ago. So there are like closed unit ICUs, um, at least at our institution where anesthesiologists are the primary providers in these ICUs are the cardiothoracic ICUs, where you are specifically taking care of patients who are status uh, post-cardiac surgery, the the different kinds, because these patients require uh, pretty involved post-operative resuscitation like through ECMO, and then pressure requirements. Um, Peds anesthesia is another rotation, and then we also do neuro anesthesia, which can fall under general anesthesia for some people. And I'm trying to think if there's one I'm missing. I think. I think that's it. I think okay. those are the the main ones. Um, although that being said, there are more fellowships that are currently available, albeit not all ACGM accredited. For instance, there's like a transplant fellowship you can do. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, there's no institution, I think, Emory is known for its liver transplants, but it's probably be difficult to do a month of just liver transplants, just because the volume is not as high as other surgeries. And also, those surgeries are really tough. So um, just to have one person sitting through one of these like what could be 18 hour surgery cases every day would probably be unreasonable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So it's, um, I guess one thing I didn't really, like, I think I was relatively aware that anesthesia did ICU. I just didn't fully, especially like talking to you. And then like when we were on vascular, you know, we were down in the vascular ICU a lot and uh, mm-hmm. that was, that would seem to be run by an anesthesia service or anesthesia attendings and, and residents and fellows. And I guess it's, it's like really like critical care is like a major like subspecialty of, of anesthesia. I think, aren't, aren't there anesthesiologists that do almost exclusively critical care was as, as attendees. Is that,
1: is that right? Correct. Correct. Especially in the private setting, um, from what I've, I'm starting to learn as I thinking about career beyond residency, uh, you can definitely have an exclusive critical care kind of work, uh, environment in the academic institutions. Um, you are given the flexibility of wearing multiple hats. You can be some days in the OR, usually these attendings who balance between OR and the unit. Okay. They'll do like a week on week off kind of thing. Um, and it just keeps things uh, so that they don't lose their intraoperative skills. And then also carries over into the ICU, some of the skills that you need in an OR.
0: Okay. So it's like the, like the pulmonologists who will do like a week in the, in the medical ICU, and then they do like a week in pulmonary consults or something same type Correct. of like, like schedule. Okay.
1: Yeah, very much. And,
0: and do you guys typically tend to work more in surgical type ICUs or, or is it really, you guys could work in theoretically could work in any type of ICU?
1: As it currently stands, I believe it's mostly, if you do an anesthesia, uh, critical care fellowship, it will be in a surgical type of, uh, ICU. Gotcha. Although, when looking at some of these programs, they have you do months that are not in, in the surgical ICU though. Gotcha.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, I think you touched on some of this, I guess, like it sounds like your typical hours are like seven to three, you know, obviously if you're on call or, or things like or if cases run over that can change. Is that, is that kind of a typical like hours for you guys per week or, um, or is it vary? I guess maybe,
1: yeah, it varies on the rotation. So that's a gen, that's pretty much your general anesthesia schedule where you do work weekends and you do heat calls. And then kind of the thing that I was mentioning before where you're doing like those pre-ops. Um, and I think this is going to be very, this is going to vary institutionally. But sure. at Emory, um, we will do these pre-ops after we're done with the OR. So we're kind of relieved. We'll work on some pre-ops. And there's some educational benefit you could argue from doing some of those. So you were still working on patients and such, and that takes about anywhere. It'll vary on the caseload. Um, at the in the thick of the recent Delta surge, when cases were low, the amount of pre-ups that we were required to do decreased. Um, and then other parts of the season where caseload is very high, where there's a lot of traumas, um, then your caseload will go up. And so we would be out of the OR by three, and then our days could go anywhere. Four to five, I would say on, a, on average. Um,
0: gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Speaking of call, like what, I guess one, like how often do you guys take call? And I realize that probably varies like on the program and, and things like that. But I guess like yeah. when you do take call, like is it overnight? Like what are you like, what are you responsible for? Obviously, probably like emergency surgeries, but also probably maybe things like code, like code blues or things like that. Um, I guess maybe take us through like what like a typical call shift is like for you guys.
1: Sure. And it's going to completely, even within one institution, it's going to vary between which site you're at. So since I'm most familiar with the Grady calls, um, when we do our 24-hour calls, that means you're usually doing your day normal day shift. And then mm-hmm. at 3 p.m. when you're relieved, now you're responsible for carrying the, excuse me, the carrying the, the we call it the AR, the anesthesia resident, which means the first call resident phone. Um, mm-hmm. The calls you get from that phone are usually for any traumas that come in. So from 3 p.m. until the next morning, you are responsible for any traumas that come in. Living in Atlanta, you and I know because you're reading all these images that <laughs> we're so like, there's a lot of traumas that come in. And so your night can be crazy busy where you are running traumas back to back. Cool thing about running traumas back to back and what differentiates your day shift when everybody's there from the night shift, is at Grady you play like a pretending role as early as like my first month of doing general, general anesthesia. What that means is I get to start every case. Um, so that if one compares anesthesia to kind of flying a plane, which is often often used analogy, you're basically doing all the takeoffs and then you do all the, uh, all the landing of the planes. Um, and then the primary where you're kind of sitting through the case once you've reached like the autopilot mode, uh, and the next successful will be sitting in that case uh, case that's like 99% of the times on the rare occasions when we get completely inundated, like there's like a, a mass shooting or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and we typically have four staff members, uh, on site, sorry, three staff members on site, and you have three cases that have to go simultaneously in those cases, then you may have to sit through the case, but gotcha. so that, that rarely ever happens. Um. And other things that we're responsible for during the call, because I mentioned earlier that at least when you're doing general anesthesia, and most of the OR anesthesias, we are also responsible for the post-anesthesia care. Um, It is our job for all surgeries to to kind of sign out patients from the PACU, whether they're being discharged to home or they're being uh, sent back to the floors of the unit. So we just need to, there's like a checklist and protocol that we follow that they're obviously breathing well, they're close to their mental status baseline, uh, their hemodynamics are stable. Um, there's no nausea, vomiting, complications, things that we anticipate are complications of anesthesia. And once they've kind of checked all those boxes, then it is our role while we're on call to also make sure that um, we sign them out. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: So you can, sounds like call can be pretty busy <laughs> at say Grady very, is, to say the very least.
1: <laughs> yeah. At Grady, it's very busy. And, you know, just the types of cases you also get um, especially if it's a, a trauma, like your classic Grady trauma. Yeah. It's going to be very bloody. You're going to be administering a lot of blood. Your adrenaline is going to be kind of at max <laughs> um, regardless of what time of day it is. And you're just going to be doing procedures like very quickly the ask is big um, and the time will fly. That being said, we also like that you do urgencies as well. And those are just as rewarding and important for patients. Those are very different from your traumas, but you also learn very interesting anesthetic techniques. And especially when in the wee hours of the night, when you have less support, you just end up MacGyvering a little bit more than mm-hmm. you normally do, which is kind of one of the, the exciting parts about working at an institution like Grady. Um, but then at Emory University Hospital, it's a bit different. They do different cases there. Uh, your call will be comprised of like these 18-hour liver transplant cases, which is something that you won't see at most institutions, which is some people in our field, like will say those two are equal. Uh, comparable doing traumas and liver transplants in the sense that you're, you're going to have to administer a lot of blood products, mm-hmm. a lot of blood products. And so, um, you get different flavors, uh, and it's just busy one way or another.
0: Nice. Nice. Um, that's <clears throat> awesome, man. And I guess you, you had touched on it before and you've, you've mentioned it the nurse anesthetists. So, they, like you said, they're kind of, it seems, sounds like they're almost the equivalent of like the PA or MPs you see out on the floor, or like on other services in your guys' field. I guess um, I feel like there's, even I maybe have a little bit of haziness on this still is like where, like, where do, does their role come in? And where, like, like, I guess where do they come in in all of this kind of uh, workflow that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So there's two primary mid-level roles um, that have found itself in modern-day anesthesia, like as I'm training. One is the anesthetist. They're also called AAs, anesthesia anesthetists. Um, That, the degree path um, is slightly different from the other one. Uh, The other one's called CRNA. And starting with the anesthetist, uh, the anesthetist, I can't quote like the years of number of training. I don't know that off the top of my head, but they are more or less equivalent of physician assistants. It's kind of that sort of route. Uh, They will do like bachelor's and then it's, I believe it's a two year, at least at, um, at least at Emory. Emory has an an anesthetist school as well. And it's a two year where they focus on clinical and everything anesthesia. Um, And this, position is recognized by our national governing board the American Society of Anesthesiologists. So they are a, in in their namesake, it's their assistant roles and they work in conjunction with us um, to essentially perform anesthesiology under the supervision of a physician, DO or MD. For the CRNAs, CRNAs are, by training initially, uh, start off as nurses, and then they get additional uh, advanced master's level training in a CRNA. I don't know the exact timeline of how, how much training goes into that, but in the end, um, they have a different governing body. They are not, there's no stipulation through our own governing body that they are supervised under anesthesiologists, and so in the news, some people who are, you know, have an where anesthesiology may have piqued an interest as a field, they may have heard about that there are certain states that have now recently, uh, such such states like Michigan um, that have acknowledged CRNAs to have some degree of autonomy in, in practicing, although there are, there's like finely stipulated like restrictions on where they can practice, but they may be able to do so. Um, There's some political tension that exists between CRNAs and anesthesiologists, including between the the national organizations um, that has been ongoing for several years. It has not, there's been no drastic, drastic changes that has affected like our rules per se, but some people rightfully so are concerned about the future um, to some measure. Uh, As far as a resonance, Working among both CRNAs and AAs, I feel very fortunate to be in an institution where my training has not suffered as a result of working alongside. There had always been rumors, even before I was even interested in anesthesiology as a career path, that there were some institutions that may, and I've never validated this, but just via rumors and word of mouth, where G residents may not get more learning experience because learning experience cases would go to CRNAs or AAs. I've never found that to be the case at any of the sites at Emory, which has been great. Um, but I do think that I could see how that could be an issue, though.
0: Sure. Sure. I guess as far as like administering anesthetics, um, like intubation, those types of things, is that typically falling on you guys or like the anesthesiology attending or do they, do the AAs and CRNAs do those types of things as well?
1: So AAs and anesthesiology attendings and CRNAs, we do the procedural stuff. The attendings are there to help us make the overall plan. And then also to bail us out should anything happen, like okay. if there is a difficult airway. So in general, uh, we do all the procedures.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, and then I imagine like the pain management service, that's probably a separate thing, like, because that's more, I guess, clinical, if you will, or, or I guess more like you're kind of like having to see patients and do clinic and things like that. Is that, is that kind of a different type of mid-level that would be involved in that subspecialty?
1: Yeah. uh, So yeah, there's, I have, so, so both AAs and CRNAs have also, you will see them in in the different various uh, subspecialties as well. Um, As far as kind of the role of the anesthesiologist though, in those um, a little bit different. And like you've kind of said a couple things, but I think uh, it's important to discern acute from chronic. So generally speaking, if you're doing acute pain, it is inpatient. Uh, you will, your working space will be in the hospital. You'll come in and kind of do regional blocks, administer blocks before surgeries or after surgeries or intraoperatively. And then you're doing these like post operative pain management, um, whether it be through medical, purely medical management or even procedural management. If you're doing chronic pain, um, that's usually more of the outpatient side, and because chronic pain as a field has evolved drastically, and there's very exciting things that's coming out of that field uh, as far as interventions or procedures we are able to provide patients who have certain kinds of forms of chronic pain, like failed back surgery syndrome or complex regional pain syndrome, you can now offer. Chronic pain specialists are now offering um, neuromodulation. Uh, it's a modality that has existed for a while, but is, is garnering a lot of interest because in the, in the setting of an opioid crisis that is continuing relentlessly, um, it has been another modality of pain control that has been shown to reduce the use of narcotics. Um, and that field is kind of exciting also because it takes your typical, this is now like if I spoke to, you know, even some of my co-residents um, who are in the different fields, and I ask them, like, what does the chronic pain anesthesiologist do? They probably wouldn't be able to tell me because it's so niche. Um, and these are things I think medical students would never get on a, a one-week, two-week, or four-week rotation. But you will spend time in the OR if you're an interventional pain specialist, and then again, doing procedures, uh, albeit very quick. Uh, you're not doing intrathoracic surgery, um, but you are you will have a dedicated OR. You will be, um, using sterile technique, uh, in some cases, using fluoroscopy intraoperative while doing the procedure and, uh, and kind of, you know, being a different form of proceduralist in the OR. You won't be on one side of the trade right, where we're used to.
0: Wow. That's pretty, that's pretty cool.
1: Um,
0: yeah, I remember my med school, there was a pain specialist that he put a lot of like pain pumps in and things like that. And he had it was like you said, he had his own operating room that he just ran it all day <laughs> and he, he yeah. would do a lot of different uh, procedures in there, which was pretty cool. Um, I guess what other, but aside from the pain procedures, cause, um, I want to ask you about that mm-hmm. in a little bit here, but I guess what, like day to day, like, uh, what procedures, like, are you guys doing? Like, obviously like innovations, like, uh, lines, things like that. Like what, what type of, like, what are your kind of bread and butter procedures that you guys do a lot of?
1: IVs you get very good at. Um, I'd say we're the expert linesmen, you know, uh, and women. We get, it is, it's already dawned upon me that even at this point in my training, the lines that the nursing staff or people can't get, they'll always ask us to kind of bail them out. Um, and that's a part that now I didn't appreciate much, but I kind of take pride in. I think among co-residents, we kind of do that like as a joke, obviously, like who's who's you know proficient at putting lines, but putting achieving access, like when you when we all learned our like ABCs of traumas and such, very important. Uh, it's half, if not more than half, of how we administer inpatient hospital uh, medication. And so establishing access is important thing. So we do anything from IVs to central lines to arterial lines in the OR, um, you know, I put in several arterial lines by now, um, a couple months into my anesthesia training, just on general, uh, on cardiac, when you do your cardiac anesthesia months, uh, some patients will get two arterial lines and, you know, central, uh, your large war IVs through which you have to administer blood. Um, and then as far as, procedures, intubations. Intubations come in different flavors. So we do intubations that are your your standard endotracheal intubation that everyone knows from TV, like watching TV shows. Um, You have LMA devices, um, which are superglottic devices that sit above, less invasive. Um, And then you have tons of different types of uh, endotracheal tubes as well. Um, You have like NIMS tube, which are tubes that are able to uh, conduct uh, electrical signal that's typically used in thyroid surgery. So we can simulate muscle wow. uh, for your VAT surgeries, um, video assisted thor- thoracoscopies. Um, we put double lumen tubes so they could do single lung ventilation. Those are incredibly hard tubes to place uh, based on the handful of experiences I've had. And then you also have these very small Larry tubes that for ENT and OMFS surgeries, you'll end up, um, because they do a lot of work in the airway, to put those, sometimes we also do uh, nasal airways. So we put a, we intubate their, their, uh, uh, their, their trachea by inserting their nose, Um, just all kinds of airways I was not familiar with uh, before I started. And then for now pain, that kind of covers, I think, a lot of the endotracheal intubation. I guess I should talk about like spinal and epidural. These are things I have not had a lot of experience with. I've done one spinal up to now, Um, but spinal uh, and epidural. uh, Epidural, you're having anesthesia administered outside of the fecal space, kind of outside the dura. Um, It is a longer, it takes longer to uh, work, but, you know, a lot of LMD patients love it because it gives them good pain control during the process of part And then spinals uh, indicated for a lot of surgeries that are below the level of the umbilicus, but more extensively used these days. Um, you're going one layer deeper. And that's another form of anesthesia. And all these anesthesia, forms of anesthesia, as I mentioned, uh, you can also do in combination. It all has to do with like patient factors, the type of surgery they're getting. I and mean, we kind of optimize it. And then as far as pain type of procedures we do, uh, a lot of regional anesthesia blocks, that basically Mm -hmm. means blocks. We get very good at using the ultrasound um, and we'll do these procedures, they're very quick. Oftentimes I would say for most ortho vascular surgery procedures, sorry, I should start with vascular, this form of anesthesia will be the primary form of pain control anesthesia um, because these patients will not be completely asleep during the surgery, especially if they're getting like an AV fistular graft. A lot of the patients sound vascular, for instance. Right. These right. patients will get blocks. Um, so they'll get some sort of upper extremity, uh, brachial plexus block, and they will be communicative with the surgeon during the surgery. Um, and so we'll do we'll perform these preoperatively in the pre-op holding area. And the, these injections take, it's operator dependent, but take anywhere from like five minutes to 10 minutes based on the anatomy of the patient. And the patients do really well. It's, I, it's been quite remarkable how such a quick procedure has high yields, uh, which is why a lot of the surgeons and the service has gotten much busier. There's more data coming out that it, again, has helped to thwart uh, narcotic use, uh, especially in opioid naive patients. So it's it's a great thing, um, and there's and these regional blocks come in a, like a bazillion flavors. There are textbooks that have literally laid out regional techniques for every possible nerve in your body, which that's, is kind of cool. We don't we don't do all of them, but there's a lot of bread and butter ones we
0: do. That's so wild! That's mm-hmm. awesome. I think, and I imagine, I feel like I when I rotated in ortho in med school, like a lot of hand surgery is done with those type of blocks you're you're talking about as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of those like a so lot of the
1: plastic surgery.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yep. Nice. Um, I guess kind of talking about the different uh, residency programs and paths. So you're in like a categorical mm-hmm. program, if that is that right. And then there's also like the advanced kind of like how radiology is or like dermatology where, you know, you do like a separate intern year and then you, Correct. you know, proceed into, um, you know, your, you know, your residency program. I guess, what are your like thoughts or just kind of what you've seen from like the different options, like essentially for like doing your intern year, like whether you do it like categorical, like how you did it, or if you do a TY or prelim medicine or prelim surgery or any other options that maybe that there are that I'm not thinking of, I guess, kind of what are your thoughts on like the pros and cons of all that?
1: Yeah. Currently there are two ways, just like you said, to approach your anesthesia residency training generally you do the advanced track or you do a categorical track categorical also sometimes called integrated where you're doing all of your years under one roof and then there's a there's a bit more continuity between the intern year and the subsequent years doing that pathway honestly has from what i've noticed is kind of coming in favor um, the main reason being, I think, because anesthesiology has become more specialized, like all these fellowships that are starting to get more accredited by the HGME has meant that like general anesthesia is also like nar- kind of narrowing scope and they just want more specialized advanced training, uh, which means that they just need more months. So the benefit of doing a categorical track, which is a little bit more integrated and the rotations you are on are more carefully selected is all of this kind of set up for you to kind of hit the ground running when you're in your anesthesia years, like the year I just started. Mm -hmm. Um, So the one that I did had had a good mix of surgery and it had uh, some months of medicine floors as well, but it wasn't like, as I just mentioned, it, it was deliberately planned. And so the surgery months that we did have, they wanted us to see things from the other side of the curtain or the drape and because those would be the patients we would also manage. So I had trauma surgery, vascular surgery, which is kind of important for us uh, because of all the access issues and such. Uh, And then kind of learning about coagulopathies and how to manage blood products and such. And then the last one was surgical oncology. I think that was our general surgery month kind of exposure that where we got to see complex surgery, but in surgical oncology, we're quite focused on fluid management. That was something that I really got to appreciate, um, especially now that I do those cases, it's it's been a great, great learning experience for managing fluids intraoperatively and perioperatively. Um, and then the medicine ones, we had like a cardiology month, and then we had neurology month, all these things that, uh, it was good to learn little pieces of, and then this year we have like the foundation we picked up from interior but then now kind of catering more towards anesthesia. And then we had two months of like ICU, but we did the my I when I had my ICU months, they were both in the cardiothoracic ICU, which was kind of a bit intimidating to start off with that as the first ICU exposure as a resident, but uh, it got us to learn how to manage. ICU patients, like surgical ICU patients, but again, specifically that niche where most anesthesiologists work. So that's one pathway. Uh, the other pathway that some of my colleagues, you know, chose to do, uh, and they're my uh, co-residents now, is to do their latter three years at Emory, but then they did their TY year either at Emory or elsewhere. So you could do, that first year could be come in three flavors, I guess technically more than that, but you could do a TY year, a prelim medicine year, or a prelim surgery year, and to each their own what they want to do. But in general, when when it was when I was applying, I know that most people rank the TY year over like a prelim medicine or prelim surgery year because the TY year affords some flexibilities. You can do rotations in surgery. It kind of it depends on the institution you do it at and what's offered, but you could kind of mix things as opposed to doing 100% one. Um, And then the prelim surgery and prelim medicine years, uh, as its name suggests, you're doing purely one or the other. The surgery one sounds pretty intense, (laughs) but I know some people who have done that year uh, and I think it has benefited them immensely because they get very comfortable with different kinds of surgeries. And then also knowing how to manage post-surgical patients because they do a lot of floors work as well. and then medicine, you are just becoming kind of the all-knowing, you know, the all-knowing. You kind of learn how to do everything. Right. Um, and then the fourth one that's kind of not real is some things that we sometimes see is when people cr- uh, change careers paths. Sure. Uh, you w- you will sometimes see somebody who did like a PhD in veterinary and then they decide to switch over to anesthesia or something like that. Gotcha.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. I feel like from what you're telling me, probably like the year you did is maybe the most ideal. Cause you kind of get the best of both worlds. You do some medicine and then you do some surgery. And I feel like even from my own experience, like from getting prepared for, I obviously I didn't do as much surgery as you did, but it was nice yeah. to see like the surgical side of things like versus just all only doing medicine. And then on the flip side, like only doing surgery, it's nice. I would imagine to see like the medicine, like get very comfortable <laughs> with like heart failure and COPD and diabetes and all that kind of stuff, um, as mm-hmm. well. And I tell them the same thing. to like, you know, medicine's interested in like IR when they're trying to figure out, I almost feel like like a lot of people push the surgery year, but I feel like I tell them to also look at like doing a TY year where they can kind of mix and match and get the most, of, best of both worlds. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like in the end, there's, I think, no right way to do it. Yeah. It's kind of like there's a million ways to skin a cat kind of thing. I don't think it puts you at a disadvantage in any way if you do whatever, you know, whatever works for you. Uh, when, when you start anesthesia, it's almost like restarting an intern here. As I know we kind of discussed that you learn it's very different environment from anything else you've seen before. Uh, we have a whole different set of like diagnoses and, uh, things that we think about intraoperatively than you would think about with the same raw data that you would think about on the floors. And so, Everyone kind of starts from square one once you start anesthesia, so there's no advantages or disadvantages per se.
0: Yeah, no, I think, you know, for radiology, it's the same way. Like you said, there's a hundred ways to do the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's kind of also what's, you know, convenient for you as well. Um, Yeah. Nice. Um, So, I guess, you know, you mentioned some, uh, you know, fellowships for anesthesia. Do most Mm -hmm. people... it sounds like it's leaning towards more people are doing fellowships. Do most residents who graduate now do fellowships or is there kind of a trend towards that? Like kind of where are things are with that?
1: I have always been told it's like, it varies some years. There's a, there's a class that everybody wants to do fellowship, but as you know, you know, or everybody in medicine knows if you do fellowship, it's another year of making uh, uh and bits you know like you're not really you it's kind of hard to do at the end of training to you know subscribe to another year or two or three in some cases in anesthesiology most all of the fellowships as it currently stands they're one year which is kind which is really nice so you're not it, it does a year goes by so fast at this you know stage in our training but it is still another year um at our institution i would always say i think what i've noticed is With the exception of last year, maybe um, the majority of residents will choose to do a a fellowship. The thing that I've always been told in general at, you know, your major academic institutions is that that you may be pressured into. And I think people who are going to the interview cycle, you know, soon to go through it, they'll read things on blogs saying like you should always tell them you want to do a fellowship if you want to like be considered seriously. I don't know if that's actually true, but it does. End up working out like you know, if you want to go to an academic institution where you're going to see very cool cases, advanced cases, because they have those fellowship programs and people who are highly trained. Um, hopefully, you are considering otherwise, there's no reason to go through all of that and do difficult and challenging cases. Um, and then the last thing is I've heard from some attendings who have gone through the whole job search process always when you have more training under your belt you are way more market way more marketable than not you know even having one extra month and so that's another incentive that we've been provided to do it
0: sure and I does it matter because like in radiology for example almost especially now almost everybody does a fellowship whether they're doing private practice or academics is it the mm-hmm. is that does private practice versus academics and anesthesia seem to influence that or at all like do people who are going academics seem to more so do fellowship or does it not really? does that really not come into play as
1: much? I think historically, if you wanted to get a good private job, I don't know exactly what that entails, but people say good private job, maybe it has some to do with the pay or a group that where the benefits are great and it's a good working environment and good location, um, they would not hire without a a fellowship. It's just more competitive to get those jobs. So that was the case. But these days, even with academic institutions, Uh, it is hard to get, you know, some position and be able to kind of advance your career without a fellowship. Gotcha.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, I guess, are you leaning towards any type of subspecialty yet or is you you still kind of just checking
1: everything out? I'm still, you know, my biggest, my biggest flaw is that I'm easily enamored by all the different fields, And so, (laughs) I am pretty confident I will pursue a fellowship. Um, I think it will be between chronic pain or critical care, which are vastly different things. Mm-hmm. But I could also consider, I could, you know, I've loved doing general anesthesia the last several months. And I could also see myself being a journalist. So I know I didn't answer your question, but I think I'm going to do a fellowship. I'm not sure which one, but I could also see myself not doing a <laughs>
0: No, that's, that's totally fair. I mean, uh, we both still have many years ahead of us <laughs> um, yeah. for sure. I, I guess for, you mentioned critical care and, and interventional pain, or I mean, uh, chronic pain, excuse me. Um, are those two things like you, if you want to do those, you have to do a fellowship. Are those subspecialties where like, if that's what you want to do as a, as an attending, you have to do a fellowship.
1: Correct. Okay. Correct. Okay. Yeah. These days, if you want a job to do that, yes.
0: Okay. And so chronic pain fellowship, you know, you've touched on that. I imagine that's a pretty procedure heavy um, fellowship. And then obviously as an, as, as an attending pretty procedural heavy, I guess maybe walk us through kind of that aspect. Cause that, from what I understand it is, you know, you run a consult service, you do like uh, you guys do clinic as well. I can see like pre and post opera or pre and post procedural evaluate. It's kind of similar to IR from what I understand. Is that, I guess, is that true to some extent or
1: yeah, I think um, for for chronic pain, actually, it could be, they, these uh, fellowships can also come in two flavors. They're actually like the fellowship programs um, before procedures became a big thing, like the interventional component of it became a big thing. Um, a lot of it was actually medical management of chronic pain, which means that you are in, you're doing clinics, a lot of patients who are on multimodal you know, pain regimen with a lot of narcotics uh, for treating things like cancer pain. And again, uh, like chronic back pain, and then you would do medical management. And so, you know, at the at the start of like the opioid crisis, when the resurgence, you know, in, most recently after Jocko um, recognized pain as the sixth vital sign, and we had these quote unquote pill mills, these were essentially, a lot of them were like these chronic pain doctors who started prescribing, you know, narcotics non-judiciously. Of course, with legislation and, and sweeping public health movements that have helped to curb a lot of the prescribing uh, in both acute and chronic settings, we've now, um, the pendulum is kind of swinging the other way, but in short, we've made huge strides. And so... Chronic pain is no longer just prescribing, although some people will still practice in that way without doing procedures. So it really depends. I've always been told like where you do your fellowship. Is it a fellowship where they have a lot of interventionalists who are doing that? Um, So some people will build practices that's very intervention heavy. Other people will do kind of a 50-50 and other people will do no interventions and kind of do a clinic-like where they're doing prescription of narcotics. Um, in a safe and legal way, um, so that all kind of depends on your your level of comfort, training, and where you are. Gotcha, gotcha.
0: And are those the type of <clears throat> interventions? Are those like nerve blocks? Like what, what what are kind of like the bread and butter interventions um, in chronic they're, pain?
1: They're, in chronic pain, you don't do as much nerve blocks. Uh, okay. Those the the nerve blocks will be regional anesthesia, like the acute pain that you mm. do in inpatient. And, uh, and that's because like the nature of those, unless you're putting in some sort of catheter that administers local for an extended period of time, it's, uh, which is usually on the order of days, um, nothing like well beyond that. But those, uh, like when you're doing uh, th- those, it's local anesthetics that have that like half-life of 16 hours to 24 hours. So it's great for that post-operative pain. But for chronic pain, these are people who are living with pathologies that's kind of dictating the life and as it's not going to go away. So for those these people, uh, a huge subfield of chronic pain, interventional chronic pain, is neuromodulation. And so there are things called uh, stim- neuro, uh, uh, neuros- neurostimulators that are placed in, um, spinal cord stimulators that are placed in uh, into the patient's. Uh, dorsum um and then they place electrodes you you uh emit that emit some sort of frequency in certain kind of, certain kind of pattern it sends electrical signals that will disrupt uh transmission of pain signals um from basically like peripherally to centrally wow and, that, and that's a that's like a a growing field much better devices with uh more finely tuned based on, you know, tons of research, a different kind of interference, like patterns that can mute, if not like mitigate pain signals. And then there are other procedures like ablations that people do, Um, they'll put devices like things called Vertiflex in to properly uh, orient the spine for certain patients who have uh, bad bad back pain. those are the first things that come to mind. It's also hard to speak about that without having actually done a lot of the yeah, procedures myself. But from from kind of a person of interest, like those are it's kind of, is a very much uh, field that's still growing. More procedures coming, um, and then also I know some. Uh, there's like uh, there's a couple investigators at our own institution at through the VA. She's one of our uh, uh, associate program directors for the fellowship program here. And she's doing, um, uh, for P- for veterans, we're coming back with PTSD and, uh, and having pain associated issues. She's, um, implanting these 10, 10 devices, um, which I don't, I, I don't even want to speak about cause I don't know much about it. Um, but the, basically their devices that kind of fit um, just behind your ear and um, she's studying kind of how she's able to mitigate mitigate uh, headaches and, and PTSD in wow. those kind of patients. So a lot of like interesting very like above your typical like medical education stuff um, that's kind of happening in this field which has been very
0: exciting. That's really cutting edge that's really cool. Um, I guess kind of winding back a little bit, When you were in medical school, it sounds like you came to the decision a little bit later. Uh, I guess what made you kind of pick anesthesia? Like what was your process like versus picking something else?
1: For me, um, for a long time, full disclosure, I thought I was interested in surgery. Um, And before that, I thought I was interested before medical school, I thought I was going to do some kind of internal medicine field. So I, I had a tendency to kind of, I had tried out different fields. And then it wasn't until I did my surgery rotation that I was exposed to anesthesia and kind of all the, all the while, um, because I was a non-traditional student, I'd always like had extracurricular interests, um, particularly in the opioid crisis. So before I came to medical school, I spent two years in Boston. And while I was in Boston, it was kind of at the height of the, the modern day opioid crisis. I saw I lived in the South end and I, I saw patients overdosed on the sidewalk sometimes and then the whole concept of naloxone uh, that as a rescue drug kind of came into being and I was very, very, very interested in that. And so I pursued that work in medical school as well. Um, And so I guess at that point, you could kind of argue was at the primary care standpoint, uh, looking at the impacts of the opioid crisis. And then that evolved into as I was developing my interests, like within medicine and doing things that are procedural. I saw the intersection between kind of surgery and the perioperative environment and the opioid crisis. That patients were receiving surgeries, excuse me, were being exposed to narcotics. And then as a result, there was like prolonged use, especially in opioid patients. And there's an anesthesiologist by the name of Chad Brumet. And then there's a couple of surgeons at the University of Michigan, my alma mater, where they were looking at this and it was like, when I read that paper, I remember it was like sort of 10 most common surgeries that were done at their surgery at their hospital. Um, they looked at how many opioids were being prescribed and what was adequate enough and then seeing if there is consequences of um, prolonged prescribing of narcotics. And that was very exciting to me because wow. um, it was really itrogenic. If you want to make it the case, meaning it's something, if we can, it's preventable number one. And if mm-hmm. you can, if you can kind of correct that issue, it, it can actually solve a crisis that was prior to COVID, like the uh, the most deadly public health issue, more deadly than car accidents per year. Uh, because I I gave this like med talk during medical school about it, so I had all these like numbers memorized. But um, but yeah, so it was uh, it was a very much deadly epidemic that was going on uh, in our country and and to be in that space where you could do something i thought was great so i found myself in the perioperative thought i wanted to do general surgery but then when i learned a little bit more about anesthesia and realized that intraoperatively it's not the surgeon who's administering any uv pain medicine it was the folks on the other side of the drape Then I got very interested. And then I realized I didn't know anything about anesthesiology. My perception of anesthesiology was also the doctors who put everyone to sleep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, And I but (laughs) right. But then (laughs) but but then I quickly realized it's way more complicated than that. And there's a lot we don't know in anesthesiology. That anesthesiology is really actually a very dangerous field if you don't do it well. Um, and I was like very attracted to that. So I I developed an attraction, and then honestly, as I done, I guess, just to answer your question, that's kind of how I fell into anesthesiology. And then I, when I was kind of comparing all the different fields about what I wanted, there were definitely perks of anesthesiology, the duration of training, mm-hmm. the the length of fellowships, um, the, the culture that exists within anesthesiology, and then also your kind of day to day. It is a field that, you know, as we talked about already, like you're not working crazy, crazy long hours, which is great. Um, and I think, you know, it's hard not to think about after going into debt as a medical student, it's hard not to also like not look at compensation and such and anesthesia is just not in like the top five or anything like that, but it's in the upper half, which makes it uh, also a practical um, career choice. So all these things combined while being able to still, you know, continue my interest in the opioid crisis, um, made it like a very obvious choice by the end of medical school. And then since I've begun training and like talking about all those different fellowship tracks and having done rotations as, you know, as a doctor, as a training doctor, it makes me even more excited, but also more assured, like I made the right choice. Because even if I wasn't so sure, like I wanted to do chronic pain critical care, completely different kind of doctoring Mm -hmm. is still an opportunity. I can still see patients. I can be a primary for a patient. I can do more medical care. And if I don't want to do any of that, I can still just hide back in the OR behind the drapes. And then maybe one day play Sudoku while the surgery's gone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's really, it sounds like, you know, you had this longstanding, like interest in, you know, the opioid opioid crisis and how to, you know, tackle that. And, um, you've done a lot of research and meaningful work in the, in that area. and then it kind of meshed with you know both your personal you know kind of interests and and passions. and then um, you just found that you've and it sounds like you continue to find that you you know really like it and have a passion for it, which is really cool. Um, i had, yeah, I had a very similar thing with radiology, like I thought I wanted to do surgery and then, you know, I really liked anatomy. And then as I've gone through, you know, the same thing, I'm only a few months into radiology residency, but as I continue to go through it and do more rotations, I find more and more, it was like the right fit. And, uh, definitely, you know, and cause radiology, I think is also like kind of similar anesthesia. You don't like everyone knows what a radiologist does, but like at least superficially, but no, I think it's like anesthesia. There's much more to it than what people, you know, just sitting in a dark room drinking coffee and reading, images all day <laughs>
1: um <laughs> we, gotta, we gotta keep it a secret though we don't wanna right right, right. A secret,
0: uh. yeah and then it, you know as you know i have a strong as an interventional as well which is just a whole different animal as well which again i think a lot of med students don't fully understand uh, get a understanding of what what that what that feels all about um i guess given that what would be your advice to like med students that maybe they think they're thinking about doing anesthesia they're like in their third mm-hmm. year like what how should they like go approach their rotations or their elective time, like what, and then like even just their thought process of like kind of making that decision.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I'm actually, I think I'm better able to ask, answer this question because I got this question even last year and mm-hmm. then the year before. Um, when you're doing your anesthesia rotation, first off, I wanna make a more broad statement because I think a lot of people are turned off by anesthesia because quite frankly, as a medical student, it is such a boring rotation, um, and I love I love teaching, and I love you know letting medical students try a lot. That's just kind of my own my personal commitment to education. But as a resident, having a as, having a, having a medical student beside you uh, in an OR case is very hard because the thing about anesthesiology why it looks easy from the outside, but why it's tough and exhausting actually. And why we have like, our field actually has the high suicide rate and has the highest burnout uh-huh. rate, which is surprising, yeah. yeah, um, is because most cases can go smoothly. Some of them are stressful, but I would say on a day, day in and day out, if you want to do a really good job, you have to be hyper-vigilant. Mm-hmm. Um, that means for like, you're, it's almost comparable like to taking a step one exam or step two exam, um, especially if you're sitting for those seven, eight hour surgeries, which is why we actually have those like dedicated breaks. Um, because in between cases, we don't get breaks because we're always turning over the room. We're responsible for setting up, we're responsible for catching the things that the primary team sometimes don't catch, Like they have a hemoglobin that's eight and we should mm-hmm. be transfusing them because we anticipate they'll have this blood loss in the surgery Sure. or a lab value like a potassium of seven where, you know, there's some medications we can induce with that can worsen that and put the patient in a cardiac arrest. Um, and so we just have to be hyper when we're on. And I think by design, that's also why we only work until three, because it's very hard to do that. Because when I do the calls, I know how exhausting it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then if you add a medical student on top of that, and you're trying to teach, it, it's like on a whole different level. And although you want to have, everyone thinks that, you know, What's so difficult about pushing it to what's so difficult about this? That's because like nine times out of ten, you're right, it's safe. But then that 10%, it can actually kill the patient. Um, like and that's I I fortunately, you know, knock on one haven't had that happen, but not to be able to secure someone's airway, just keep jabbing and trying to put a tube in is like one of the most dangerous things. and my attendees keep telling me this too. like everybody always says, like we build this confidence in anesthesia. I'm getting pretty good at my intubations. I'm getting pretty good at putting in lines, but then I'll still have that one day where there's this airway I can't get. and it's going it, it will unfortunately, lead the patient to have a hypoxic arrest. and and I can I've gotten close calls where I can appreciate that. And so all of that being said, going back to the medical student like, the medical student comes in, anesthesia rotation, they it heard it's chill. There's like the action at the start of the case. Like, can I try the intubation? Yeah, sure, great. But then after that, their part's kind of done. And it's like, it looks like a lot of charting, us kind of looking at the monitors. So that I, I, I want to tell them there's still a lot going on because we're looking at things and these are things I'm, I'm still getting better at and learning. But for the medical student who's not, who doesn't have that level of responsibility to the patient also, don't do the same level of prep for these cases. It's just like hard for them to appreciate and they're not involved. And so that's my general statement, like this claim balance that all medical students who do anesthesia and get turned off by that. As a resident, it's so different. As an attending, it's even more scary because you have to do this on a higher scale and mm-hmm. run multiple rooms. Um, so that being said, now for the people who are interested in anesthesia, what I would encourage them to do is have the experience I did as a resident. So if you have the flexibility that you do in medical school, everyone's going to say, "I know I'm busy in this, but you'll never be as busy as we were." As interns, like (laughs) everyone else, interns, you have time. You have time. Seek out the non-traditional anesthesia experiences. I'm talking about the ICU. I'm talking about if your program has a chronic pain or acute pain, search those out because there are people who finish residency or young attendings or even you know. Uh, seasoned attendings that don't know what acute pain doctors do that don't know what chronic pain doctors do. Everyone kind of has a conception, but because these fields are very niche, they they just don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think being able to see those is also great. Um, And it's something you would honestly never see unless you did that rotation. And so uh, that's what I would also encourage uh, medical students who are interested in anesthesia to do. Bolster your interest. By seeing what's on the other side and what opportunities await.
0: That's nice. No, I think that's great advice. You know, seeking out, you know, as much exposure as possible. And, and I think getting exposure to not just putting people to sleep, like you said, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, um, nice, nice. So I guess, Given that, do anesthesia applicants, I realize this is different now with the whole COVID situation, but like before, like when you were applying, did people typically do away rotations? Is that something people usually did in anesthesia or was it kind of some people did, but most people didn't kind of how was that played out uh, when you were applying?
1: So people did. um, People did. I think it was generally... Thought as being very favorable, but as with like all away rotations, there's like risks associated with it, especially if you don't leave a good impression. Um, personally, I did not do any away. Um, and I know that there are people that were concerned because I've mentioned a lot of people um, through meta Twitter who are concerned during COVID that they were not able to do away. And I reassured everybody that I did zero. Here I am, still matched. Mm-hmm. I matched at my number one program at that. Um, Excuse me. Um, so I don't think it it's necessary, but it could be great if you're very serious about a specific program, which I just thought was hard to know without ever seeing it beforehand sure. to make that sort of commitment. But maybe you do you already knew of a program and you had like close friends there, and you're like, I must match there. Then, certainly, like you know, work your hardest and leave a good impression, then that's great. But if not, it's totally fine too. Um, again, it's just a interesting field like these away rotations will serve different purposes i think for anesthesia a lot of it is assessing how good of a fit you are and if you're not confident that you can you know gel with most of the residents you work with and kind of display a a, a hard work ethic it's most likely not going to benefit you you're not certainly not going to ever impress anybody by like doing intubations that's just not that's, that's not something i mean it's cool and you should you know applaud yourself but uh, that's not the stuff that we we I mean because I I'm involved in these residency recruitment stuff too now that we talk about it's really more like were they a great team player were they uh, do they know when they should step in and you know also kind of uh, step out where you engage these kind of things uh, so you are being observed and um, it's it's not necessary to do so. Gotcha, gotcha.
0: Now I realize I- we could probably do kind of wrapping things up here, we could probably do a whole episode on this, but like kind of just what are your, your general tips you give people applying to, like they've made that commitment. They're applying anesthesia residency, like kind of present them the best way possible, present themselves the best way possible.
1: For interviews and stuff. Yeah. Like interviews,
0: application, uh, anything you can think of that are kind of like the, like big, like hallmark tips. Maybe you would give somebody.
1: Yeah. Anesthesia. It's going to sound cliche, but communication is essential. Um, and I think if you're able to convey that well during interview day, it's going to serve you well. And then the other thing that's essential that you know you get endorsement of from uh, about this in your MSB or MSB equivalent letter from your medical school, your rotation reviews, uh, and then the interview day as well is like your well, your willingness or your commitment to being a good team member. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not always the case and leadership, all that stuff is great too. But the reality is, is when you're thinking about most of intra-op or, I'm not saying that anesthesiologists aren't leaders. There are times we have to step up, but first and foremost, before being considered a leader, anyone, this goes for the surgeon as well you have to be willing to be a good team player. You have to like learn to put your ego aside and, and where you're there for, you know, your uh, your intraoperative team when they needed you. And then even outside of the OR, among medical sp- student colleagues or resident colleagues, you are a good team member. Like those are the things that I think will serve you really well um, if you can have those things said about you applying to, applying to anesthesia.
0: Nice. Nice. All right. Um, well, Ty, I've certainly learned a lot about anesthesia. Certainly a lot that I, I didn't know before, um, kind of our so last you p- the anesthesia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think, uh, I think I'm going to stay where I'm at, but, uh, I think people out there should definitely consider it. It's, it's a, it's an even, uh, more interesting field than I, I always thought it was a very, you know, diverse and cool field because, you know, you, you guys do a lot of medicine, but then you're also doing procedures and you're involved in a lot of different, you know, aspects of, of patients care and things like that. Um, which I think is really interesting. You do, you know, a lot of, you know, you have different subspecialties like critical care, pain management, or, uh, acute pain, which I didn't even understand, like know about that, the acute versus chronic pain uh, difference, which I think is really cool. Um, so that's awesome, man. Um, and I guess our last question is when you're not doing all of these things, what are, what do you, what are your passions outside of the hospital? What, what do you, how do you spend your, your free time when you do have it?
1: <laughs> well, as you know, Cooper, I have a, I have a wife. And so, you know, life's not happy without a happy wife, you know, happy wife, happy life. And so, As much of the time I try to commit to uh, spending time with my wife, one of the best parts of Atlanta, I think, is that there's a lot to do. And so particularly we're both kind of foodies, uh, her more than me, but we love trying food. It just makes us happy. makes me gain weight, unfortunately. (laughs) uh, It makes us happy nonetheless. Um, And also like I I love, uh, I'm pretty extroverted. And so I do love, you know, talking to friends and uh, engaging with people as much as I can. Um, I know we've always talked about golfing has not yet happened, but I'd love to do that at some point. Um, Definitely. And then, and then uh, lastly, like just on a day-to-day basis, this is like the the small pockets of time. You already know this too. I'm on Twitter a lot. Uh, I love using med Twitter. I think it's a great tool to connect with people. Uh, I do a lot of mentoring through that. I do research through that. I've gotten a lot of research projects um, up to now in anesthesia through Twitter. It's just a great uh, medium. And I've kind of helped our program do some recruitment stuff with that as well.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I know. I can I can attest to that. I'm, you know, minuscule compared to you on Twitter. I'm trying to, I, I'm late to the game. <laughs> <laughs> but this guy, is, uh, he's a giant on Twitter. Um, and I guess, uh, what's your handle in case people want to follow you?
1: Oh, yeah. It's at. Tye, T-Y-E, Chang, C-H-A-N-G.
0: Okay. okay. Got, the,
1: got the original.
0: Nice. That's awesome, man. Yeah, That's where you can get like your actual, just your name, no numbers or anything. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, we'll, we'll put yeah. that in the in the show notes. Anything else you want us to plug for you out there, for the listeners out there?
1: Nothing to plug, but I mean, the, the everyone just submitted their uh, ERAS application recently. So I just want to wish everybody good luck. Um, it's stressful, no matter how you do it uh you'll have good days bad days but just know that trust the process everything will work out um and look you know the both of us here we are so
0: yeah we made it (laughs) turns at one point
1: out pgy2 so uh no i I wish everybody good luck i want to give a shout out to uh my emory anesthesia family um i am status post day call today so i'm a little bit tired i I, even notice my eyes are getting smaller as we as the conversation goes on, <laughs> approaching my bedtime, but um, no, it's, it's been a great uh, year and a couple months here in Atlanta. Got to meet you. Really enjoying uh, training here and then look forward to the upcoming years.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, Ty, it was, it was great to have you on the show and I really enjoyed talking with you and certainly learned a lot. Um, thanks again for taking time out of your schedule to come on here with us.
1: It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour brought to you by DaVinci Academy. More episodes are available on our website at dviacademy.com, our YouTube channel. They're also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also on our website, you can find our video courses for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology, and they're available as month-to-month packages. They're also available as a combo package where you can get all three courses in one. Our website also has a store where you can find our outline format textbooks for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology. All textbooks are available in paperback version and as eBooks as well. These textbooks complement our video courses and provide a nice addition to the learning experience of allowing you to focus on the learning and not having to write anything down. On our website, we also provide a free clinical cases video series called Da Vinci Cases. Da Vinci Cases aims to help you learn how to answer USMLE questions and apply concepts that you learn in our courses to answering those questions. Our cases cover a variety of topics and organ systems, and they're updated frequently with new cases. And then lastly on our website, you can find our blog, which has interesting articles that cover medical history, important figures in medicine, and innovations in medicine. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. Please be sure to tune in for our next episode.